2 Samuel 24. Uh, as I said in the prayer, we have finally come to the end of 2 Samuel. We studied uh, Judges last year and Ruth, and then 1 Samuel, and uh, so a year and a half later, we're now at the end. And I'm anxious to get into the text, so let's begin verse 1. 2 Samuel 24, this is God's holy word. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. The verse tells us that God is angry, but it doesn't tell us why God is angry. It also tells us that God used, a, uh, used David to initiate a military census. It's going to number the, the armies of Israel and Judah, which is something that God had actually commanded His people not to do. So in other words, God decided to punish Israel by leading David to do something that David wasn't allowed to do. And there is no helpful explanation in the text. The story just leans on us to trust God, even though it doesn't to us seem very fair. It actually reminds me of the age-old question. If you never ask this question, you'll start asking it now, because I'm going to give it to you, but... The question is, why did God put the tree in the garden? Anybody ever wondered that? You ever asked that question? Let me think about it. God knew that Adam and Eve were going to break the commandment, right? Because He's God. He knew they were going to fail. And the rule itself to us seems arbitrary. The Bible doesn't really explain why God forbade them to eat from the tree, does it? So why did God put the tree in the garden in the first place? If He knew it was going to cause all these problems. And there are lots of different ways that people try to answer that question. My favorite personal um, answer is uh, the way Tim Keller answers this question. He says this. He says, I had a 10-year-old, my middle son, and he was a very hard child to get to obey. And I would say to him, obey me, I'm your father, I've told you to do this, so just do it because I've told you to, right? As parents, we've all said that. Why do you want me to do that, Daddy? Because I said so, right? And you know what his son would always say? He'd say, Dad, I'd be happy to obey if you would just make it reasonable. Just tell me why this is helpful for me, or the human race, or whatever. And Tim said, I would say, well, if you only obey me when I explain it to you, then you're actually not obeying me. You're just agreeing with me. He would say, I want you to obey because I'm 45 and you're 10. (laughs) I know a little more about life than you do. And I don't want to have to explain it to you because I couldn't get it into your 10-year-old brain. And so God likewise says, don't eat from the tree and gives no explanation. The point being, 
I want you to obey me because you love me. Just because I'm God and you're not. I want you to do something not because it profits you, not because you know the reason why, but just because I'm Lord and Savior and you're not. Just do it because you love me for myself alone. And they didn't. In a similar way, beginning of this chapter, God had previously in His law told Israel not to perform a census. But in this situation, God was angry with them for some reason. Also not explained. And he incites David to do the thing he commanded them not to do. And so the census was somehow both the cause and the result of God's anger. And I know you're confused and I'm with you. And I read all the commentaries and no one really has a great explanation for this. It's just a big question mark. But let's keep reading. Verse 2. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king shall still see it. But... Why does my lord the king delight in this thing? In other words, Joab knows this is a bad idea. And he begs David to reconsider. But, verse 4, the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And the text tells us that they conduct the census, they go around to each region, they count the fighting men, And they come up with a number of 800,000 soldiers in Israel and 500,000 in Judah. Verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So I want you to notice that just as Adam in the garden immediately recognized his sin, his shame, so does David. He feels the conviction immediately after this census is done. And he immediately asks God for forgiveness. We have no reason to doubt the repentance that David is experiencing here. This is genuine. Now how do you think God will respond Verse 11, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall Three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? 
Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So God gives David three bad options. David, you can choose. You can have three years of famine. You can have three months of enemies. Or three days of pestilence. And David responds by ruling out the second option. And basically choosing the more natural disaster, right? I'd rather be in the hands of God than in the hands of man. And specifically, David says that he is trusting in the great mercy of God. Now, if you remember, the word mercy means getting less of a punishment than a person deserves. So David's trusting that whatever they deserve, God's going to do less than that. David trusts that God won't let it be as bad as it should be. Verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. So from north to south, the entire nation, 70,000 men died. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. You need to know that this is the only time in the Old Testament when the angel of the Lord was used against God's own people. In every other instance, the destroying angel, as he is known, was only used against Israel's enemies. And so this is a unique event, but it reminds us something that we've noticed throughout our study in the Old Testament. reminds us that God's people, even they, deserve the worst of God's punishment. He is not reserving judgment only for non-Jewish people. Even God's people fall under His judgment sometimes. Okay, so this is not, if you remember we've talked about, he's, it's not a safe God. Yahweh is not safe. And even so, David was correct in trusting that God would show His people mercy according to the text. But keep in mind, God still killed 70,000 men in three days. Now sometimes when we read the Bible and there's all these big numbers and this happened a long time ago and it's really easy for us to just read that and be like, oh, 70,000 men? Okay. I'm going to put this in perspective, because that's a lot of funerals for one small nation in a week. Okay? 
in comparison, their population at that time was about the same as the state of Mississippi today. There are 300 towns in the state of Mississippi. That's over 230 funerals per town in one week. That's a lot of grief. That's also a pretty big economic impact to lose that many men at once. And the writer calls it mercy. And I want you to just kind of sit with that for a second. 70,000 men, three days. It's called great mercy. Which forces us to accept that this is not as bad as it should have been. Because that's what mercy means, right? What what the text is telling us is that more than 70,000 deserve to die. 70,000 was merciful. And if we keep reading, even this amount of mercy was predicated on the need for atonement. God wasn't just granting them blanket mercy. Look at the text. It says this, And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and have done wickedly. But these sheep, your people, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So in the same way that Adam represented all humanity by his one sin, David seems to believe or to understand that These people, these thousands of people are dying because of his sin. And so he asks God, he says, will you let the anger, your anger for sin, fall on me in my house instead of on the people? That's his request. But God had something else in mind. Look at the end of the chapter. Let's read through it together. Verse 18. Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna, give to the king. Gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. So he's he's offering to give all of this to David free. 
Verse 24. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Now, it's important to understand what just happened and to recognize that this is the end of 2 Samuel on purpose. And if you remember, Samuel was really just it's one book in Hebrew. We divided it at some point. Um, but the book ends right there. And so the writer wants us to read this story as the last story. And I think partially because it sort of summarizes the message of the entire book. So what's happening? David sinned. David knew he had sinned. David knew that his sin was causing pain and suffering to the people whom he represented. He knew that he deserved the full weight of God's wrath and was asking for it. But God sent a prophet with an alternative solution. The solution was atonement. David could attempt to satisfy the wrath of God through sacrifice. But notice in the story that David didn't have what he needed to make the proper sacrifice. He needed to purchase the ox and the wood and the materials and even the place to build the altar. He didn't have any of these things already. The owner of the threshing floor tries to give them to the king for free, but David refuses and says, I'm not going to offer a burnt offering to my God that costs me nothing. Sounds very noble, right? And so David pays for the materials to build the altar. He pays for the land. He makes the proper sacrifices and the, and the, the book ends by telling us, and so God ended the plague. Period. Done. What I want to suggest to you is that this chapter is sort of like a miniature version of the story of the entire Bible. And I think that's why it comes last. What's interesting is we don't know exactly when during the reign of David this story takes place. The, the writer doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us a time stamp. He's chosen to end the story here. But this wasn't the last thing that happened in David's kingdom. But this is the way the book ends. A sinful man falls under the anger of a merciful God who provides a way out through an atonement. And that should sound familiar, right? And that's the story of the Bible. But there's one very significant difference with this story compared to the gospel. 
This atonement cost David something. Now, in truth, it's a very small amount. Okay, um, 50 shekels of silver was not much money, especially for a king. Uh, it was probably a fair price for what was being you know, given him. Um, but it's not going to set David back any to give the, the man 50 shekels of silver. By contrast, and this is the difference, the atonement that God provides for our sin is offered to us free of charge. And in fact, we can't pay for it, even if we wanted to, even if we tried. And yet also by contrast, the atonement that God offers us was not free for him. In fact, it cost God immensely. It was immeasurable. See, David was right in this impulse. He understood, okay, the atonement has to be costly, right? I'm not going to get out from under the wrath of God without paying something. That impulse was correct. It was just insufficient. David had no way of knowing exactly what his sin was going to cost him. Because there is no amount of silver or gold that could be enough. There's really not even any amount of blood of animals or even of sinful humans that would be enough to satisfy the wrath of God. What this story points us to is an atonement of immeasurable value. It points us to the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What for Him was an immeasurable cost, but to us was free. Here's the fun part, okay? Let's Bible geek out for just a moment. Where does the angel of the Lord stop? Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 3 verse 1 tells us that the threshing floor of Aruna was located in the exact same spot where a thousand years earlier Abraham was prepared to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice when God provided the ram. Same place. Not only that, a thousand years after David, the judgment of God would fall on David's house, as David had requested in verse 17, but it would fall on Jesus Christ in, guess what? The exact same location. This threshing floor, purchased by David, became the site of the temple. And Jesus was crucified just outside the city gates. God's Lamb provided for God's people just like the ram in the thicket. Same place. Now, is that not cool? (laughs) Abraham, David, Jesus. 
same place. But Jesus offered what Abraham could not. What God was not going to demand of him, he provided himself. Jesus paid what David could not. And what I want you to see as we kind of finish this up, this whole series, the gospel always comes to us in Scripture with the same two movements. Serious judgment and radical mercy. Always next to each other. Because the wrong must be made right. Okay, God is merciful, but He's also just. God is just, but He's also merciful. And in the midst of all that, the reminder, God is not safe, right? He is not okay with our sin. The solution to those two things being side by side is not that God just kind of reduced His justice to show mercy. Which is often how we think of it. But that's not the case. And the cross shows us how serious God is about our sin. He must be pretty serious about it if dealing with our sin meant the death of His only Son. If it meant even that 70,000 men dying wasn't enough. Must be pretty serious, this problem that we talk about in the church called sin. But in the same action where God shows us how serious our sin is, He also shows us the depths of His mercy. What He was willing to do to make things right for us. And you can't buy it from Him. You can't bargain with Him. He only lets us receive it with empty hands. Had had what was happening in David's day actually been the Gospel, God would have said, put your money back in your pocket, David. You can't buy it. You have to receive it with empty hands because as David said, we have fallen into the hands of God, not the hands of men. I want to close with a story. I haven't told you this in a few years. I like to use this every so often um, because it's one of my favorites. It's about a man named David Ireland. David was suffering from a rare disease. Started out as numbness in his right hand and then began spreading throughout his entire body. But he was in college at the time. He met a girl. They dated. They fell in love. And she knew the extent of his illness. She knew that it would eventually take over his body. Might even kill him prematurely. She still agreed to marry him when he asked. Not long after they got married, David and his wife Joyce... um, were expecting their first child. And at at about that same time that she found out she was pregnant, David found out that his disease was progressing more rapidly than they had hoped. And so not sure he was going to live to see his 
baby's birth, David began writing a book called Letters to an Unborn Child. See, he wanted to have some small part in raising his child even if he wasn't alive. And so in one of the letters he wrote this. Your mother is very special to me. Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner when it entails what it does for us. It means that she has to dress me shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair. She wheels me out of the house and down the steps, opens the garage and puts me in the car. She twists me around so that I'm comfortable. She folds the wheelchair, puts it in the car, goes around to the other side of the car, starts it up, backs it up, gets out of the car, pulls the garage door down, gets back into the car, and drives us to the restaurant. And then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant, then takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable during dinner. We sit down. And dinner means she feeds me the entire meal. And when it's over, she pays the ticket. She pushes the wheelchair out to the car again and reverses the same routine. And when it's all over, finished, we're home, with real warmth, she'll say, Honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. And I never know quite what to say. And brothers and sisters, I want to suggest to you that that's the kind of love we experience in the gospel. Start to finish, we contribute nothing to the process. But God loves us as if we did. That's what the scriptures are saying to us. And the beauty of it, even more than that, the astonishment of it, is that God decided, He committed to showing us that kind of love, knowing exactly how difficult it would be and exactly what it would cost Him. And we still have no idea, if we're honest. I've been a Christian over 20 years. I still don't get it. But it's true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just want to pray for those of us in this room that may be struggling with doubts. We've heard the gospel so many times that, as Billy Graham would say, we're inoculated to it. So it's hard to hear it with fresh ears. Um, It's hard to hear it in fresh ways, but... If we stop to think about Your mercy, Lord, I I pray that it would impress in on us um, in ways that maybe it hasn't before. And even if we've heard the story our whole lives, Lord, I pray that 
you would draw us to yourself. That we would experience this, this kind of hope, this kind of joy that comes from knowing that you're loving us as if we've done everything right when we know we've done everything wrong. We deserve the worst and we get the best of you. And that is a great mercy. It is grace. I pray we would receive it with empty hands. We wouldn't try to buy it. We wouldn't try to offer you our feeble works in exchange for the blood of your Son. It's foolishness. Thank you for your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Thank mm-hmm. you.